Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Total Football Analysis EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Fans Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and sad heads. We are sponsored by the EPL Prospectus, a 280-page guide of the season created by a team of 25-plus writers and designers. Moneyball for football, analytics plus eye candy, available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Today, we're joined by soccer analyst Harshal Patel. I am host Chris Mumford, known as The Professor, Bella Chow. We have a unique podcast this week in the as we are in the international break. We take a look at the table and the teams that have overperformed and underperformed. We take a hard look at the analytics and then explain the narrative and compare to the eye test. Finally, we discuss what to expect during the next few weeks. Harshel, why don't you start us off the top with talking about what are the overall trends that you're seeing? Yes, Chris. Um, I mean, Everybody who's been watching the Premier League or, I mean, any other of the leagues so far this season will agree that it's been a very weird season. And for, I mean, there are good reasons behind that, right? We've had a very short preseason for most of the leagues uh, with some teams barely having two to three weeks of a break, which is normally six weeks. Um, no crowds in the stadium. So there is a definite drop in terms of encouragement and the intensity that you would normally associate, which has led to some blowout scorelines, which we've seen in the Premier League and elsewhere. And uh, just the amount of disruption that's been caused by positive COVID tests to players and also the rise in injuries. Um, there are some estimates which uh, already which uh, say that clubs in the Premier League have had more than f- uh, uh, an increase of 40 or 41% in, of, uh, in terms of muscle injuries as compared to last season. And that is, again, a direct result of the fact that we've had such a short, short preseason. So clubs are, have, uh, are losing players to injury. They don't haven't had time to bed in attacking and defensive systems. And there's a la- there are no crowds in, this, in the stadium. So all of that has added up to a, a really chaotic season so far. We're, we're about eight games into the Premier League season, seven for some teams. And even though it is still a very small sample size as compared to a full season, it is still about 20%. And this is the time when you can expect some trends to start emerging and you can maybe make some conclusions from there. So just in terms of broad numbers, um, if you look, if you compare, say, penalties, for example, we've seen 41 penalties awarded already in just 78 games in the Premier League so far. And for context, the most number of penalties awarded in a full Premier League season of 380 games is 106, which comes to about 0.28 penalties per game. Going at the current rate, which is uh, of 41 penalties in 78 games, that's about more than point more than 0.5 penalties. That's 0.53 penalties um, per game. And if you extend that to a, to the whole season, we could see 200 penalties being awarded, more almost double the number of the last record. So Harshal, why season, do you see why do you see that? Yeah. Why do you see so many penalties compared to last season? Um, it's one reason is VAR um, and the interpretation of the handball law that we've all seen and everybody has um, an opinion about. And most of mostly, it's negative in the sense that the way the handball law is interpreted now, there's no sense of um, you know the intent of the player or whether. There, there was an attempt to actually play the ball or whether, I mean, 
while anybody who's played the game will tell you, you while you are running your hand will be above waist height or you know at 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 a certain angle which may seem as if it's making your body bigger but it just is going to be there that's how biomechanics works you know when you're running so some penalties are undoubtedly down to handball and also in general var where challenges are being um, looked at again and deemed as being a foul in the box where earlier that may not have happened so that's the biggest reason for the explosion in penalties but also the fact that a lot of teams are getting their defensive are still not gelling defensively so you're seeing um mistakes being made errors being made offside traps not working which is why say a player goes through and then he's brought down by a defender or a goalkeeper so all of that i think is a major reason why we're seeing obviously a huge increase in penalties and even though i think that number will go down that i don't think we're going to see 200 penalties in the premier league this season out of in 380 games but i wouldn't be surprised if it still comfortably beats the 106 penalty record that there is you know we're we 20% of the season in but we've already seen we've already hit 40% of that 106 uh uh mark you know so let's let's break this down um offsides uh even though i guess there's a little bit of uh improvement we can do in terms of we all agree that you can't score with your arm or armpit right yeah. for the bamford goal hopefully will good judgment per, will prevail and that won't be considered offsides so that's one that's the easiest thing to do right the second piece is uh, are the handballs and i yeah. i think i take your point that used to be that um refs had a little more discretion where it's like yes it was a handball but uh it was not intentional or it, you can justify really it comes down to intentionality so something big has got to move in that right because video don't lie and it's it's very obvious that these handballs are occurring while as yet maybe in the past it just whisked by because of time i i think the takedown speech you're talking about which is um defenses haven't gelled yet they haven't maybe gotten their offsides traps really dialed in i i i think i i i buy into that um you know i just i also think that sometimes um uh referees they don't their their view was somewhat obstructed they didn't see how somebody went down and so on and so forth so i i guess i i'm inclined to agree with you that, that trends likely going to continue i'm really hopeful that the the ruling bodies decide to make some adjustments particularly on on the uh the handballs because i think you could probably make a case that the penalty kick revolution that's happening has been what's largely fueled lesser success right with the number of 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 penalty kicks that they've had uh, been awarded is that fair to yeah, say absolutely i mean they've they've got eight penalties awarded to them this season in the league which is double the next you know liverpool have uh, the next highest at four yeah. and they've scored seven of them they've missed one so i mean the, the thing is football is inherently a low scoring game and anybody who's been following analytics over the last few years will tell you that uh in terms of the expected goals value of a shot the a penalty has the highest expected goal value of any shot that it's different models have different numbers but it's basically 0.74 0.75 uh, the xg value that's given to a penalty which basically means that three out of four times you're going to score from a penalty so mm-hmm. when you have that high um an incidence of a shot or a chance being given to a team for say 
fouls that are not necessarily blocking goal scoring opportunities or uh, aren't say that's uh, or in the case of handball may not necessarily you know be a deliberate handball it does skew it a little bit because as i said earlier football is a low scoring game so when you give up high quality chances in that manner it doesn't really sit right and that's what's happening so yeah in terms of lester if you want to look at lester specifically yes a large part of it is down to the penalties and that's reflected in another metric which is the expected goals uh, uh the expected goal per shot that they've taken which is which as the name suggests is basically the xg the average xg of a shot taken by lester this season right which is yeah. nearly 21% it's 0.205 which is incredible i mean if you have that sort of an xg value for a shot from open play you are expected to score almost every time so right that but that's inflated by the fact that they've had eight penalties sure well so let's go back to to some other general trends and then we'll get we'll we'll circle back to uh to the the league standings what are some other general trends that you're you're paying attention to so again um in keeping with the fact that it's been an open season if you look at the goals per game uh last season the entirety of the premier league had an average of 2.72 goals per game over 380 games mm-hmm. we've had 78 games so far and you have the goals per game at 3.14 which is an increase of about 15 and a half percent over last season mm-hmm. and this i feel is a trend which is not too like i mean i i can see this being sort of sustained over the over the whole course of the season where we could end up with a full season where you have an average goals per game value of about 3 mm-hmm. you know the other like as i said the penalties i think will level off because at the moment we're running at almost double of last season in terms of how many penalties are being given per game but mm-hmm. the goal scored value i think again and this is because of the reasons i mentioned earlier where because of the lack of preparation time that teams have had and uh, just the disruption that's going to happen and the fact that you don't have uh, you know fans in stadiums that is going to lead to a large number of goals being scored cuz players do say that concentration levels can drop and just the level of intensity is a lot lower and it's almost like a training game and pros will tell you that i mean you see training games in training where you have the sort of you know 7 8 9 goal games in training but that obviously doesn't play out regularly mm-hmm. in on on the pitch but that's not the case right now i mean just a couple like we we saw spain beat germany 6-0 uh last night and that that that's just one example you've had aston villa liverpool 7-2 you've had bayern lose 4-1 to hoffenheim you've had united lose 6-1 to uh to spurs um i think it was 5-2 that city lost to man city lost to leicester so those sort of score lines may not happen as frequently but i can see them taking place and that the goal that there will be a lot more goals scored this season than than in previous seasons. Mhm. I think I'm inclined to agree with you. You know, there were instances in those games that the really the the more lopsided matches where an early PK kind of uh forced one team to press a little more offensively which opened them up and that gap and got it even wider and wider. So of course i want to blame it all on the the, the penalty kick calls but uh okay. i suspect um that your your comment about defense is just not quite jolling because of a uh just because of the amount of organization that's needed i i think that's the case it it also could just be a flat out uh just it'll regress back to the mean so um 
I guess that's why we have to watch the uh, remaining 80% of the season on that. Yeah. Um, so, so let's turn our attention back to that, the league table. Can you kind of unpack the league table and, and let's talk about it, um, some of the teams? Yep. So again, if you look at just the table at the moment, most teams have played eight games, some have played seven. Leicester obviously are on top. They've uh, got 18 points, uh, six wins out of eight which is the most in the league. Um, Spurs are second with 17, level with Liverpool, who are also on 17. Southampton, again, another team that seems to be outperforming, fourth on 16 points. Chelsea, Villa, Everton, Palace, Wolves, and Man City are in 10th, and that's the top 10. So, obviously, you do have surprises in towards the top of the table, where Leicester, Southampton... Um, Villa, Everton, arguably Palace Wolves are somewhat outperforming in terms of Palace and uh, uh, Wolves, I would say. Leicester and Southampton obviously are, are outperforming. Man City are absolutely not where they you would expect them to be. Arsenal are 11th. Man United are f- uh, 14th. So, you know, those are three big teams that are towards the sort of mid to bottom half of the table where you don't expect them to be and uh, right at the bottom you've got Sheffield United, Burnley, West Brom who've not yet won a game, Fulham have won just one game, Brighton have won just one game and I mean we will get into specific teams later on but Brighton for example I feel have been extremely unlucky both in terms of analytics and if you look at them play this season if you've seen them play which is basically we were talking about the eye test earlier right so Brighton poster boy for sort of the unlucky teams so far, I would say. And we'll talk about why that is the case. But again, very weird league table. If you if you, if you you just woke up right now, say from an eight-month or nine-month uh, nap and saw the table, you, you would be shocked at seeing Leicester on top and Southampton in fourth. And then you see City in 10th, Liverpool, uh, sorry, Arsenal in 11th and United in 14th. So... Again, in keeping with the with the trend of what we've been talking about, it's been a weird season so far, and the table reflects that. Yeah, I th- I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that you know Leicester had its really strong um, strong um, segments last season. I, I think in most everybody's mind, everyone's thinking, will they be able to have the consistency uh, over 38 matches, particularly playing in Europa? And is Vardy going to be durable enough? You know, I think that Leicester, obviously, um, they've got a magnificent duo of Vardy and, and Harvey Barnes. But I I just feel like Vardy is going to be due for an injury, much in the same way in other teams across Europe, uh, like Serie A. You've got Ibra. Uh, you know, AC Milan is heavily relying on him. Lukaku is, is really kind of the what drives Inter going forward. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you've got Ronaldo at, at Juventus. So I just, I kind of want to keep my fingers crossed for, for Leicester on that. Um, I, I'd certainly say that the big surprise has been their defensive performance in light of the the injuries that they had started. I, I, I thought that the idea was going to be score a lot of goals, but also get scored a lot on. And that, that has been, Really impressive, along with that gift of PKs, that whole bunch of PKs that I don't know if they're going to get a whole lot more PKs going forward because they've kind of gotten their uh, quota uh, for the season already. But Vardy is a very, very hard person to keep down. Any other thoughts on on, on Lester? 
it's an interesting point that you made about the defensive performance because you're right. I mean, they've had horrible luck with injuries, and also let's not forget the fact that they they obviously don't have Harry Maguire anymore. He left for Man United last summer. Ben Chilwell left for Chelsea this summer. So, uh, two huge parts of the Leicester backline over the last two three years are no longer there. In terms of the other guys, Soyuncu, Chagla Soyuncu, who came in and wowed everyone almost from the uh, start of this, of last season. Um, he's been injured. Johnny Evans has been sidelined for uh, for a bit. Ricardo Pereira, who's the right regular right back, he's also been injured. Um, so they basically so Brendan Rodgers has had to sort of make and mend with what he has. So he's moved to a back three, where Wes Morgan, who's basically, I mean, I don't think he's a regular by any stretch of the imagination anymore. But Wes Morgan has been playing. Christian Fuchs, who's clearly the backup left back, has been playing as the sort of left-sided center half. Then and then you've had you've got James Justin, who's played right back, right wing back, left back, left wing back, and that center half. Timothy Castanier, who is the sort of uh, Chilwell replacements to an extent, who came in from Atlanta, who can play at left wing back and right wing back. He started the season off brilliantly, but even he's been injured now. So. They've been really making and uh, sort of uh, they've they've not really had the the players you would expect. And before I forget, obviously the 19-year-old Wesley Fofana, who's come in and again he he looks like he's been playing in the Premier League for years and he's just 19 years old. So they've uh, I I really have, uh, the credit goes out to Rogers because he's had terrible luck with injuries, um, and even despite that he's managed to do well in terms of a defensive sense with Leicester. Right. Okay. Well, why don't we turn our attention towards second in the table and actually who they're going to be playing on Sunday. Uh, that is Liverpool and Leicester will be playing on Sunday. Help me understand the fact that the team, am I remembering this right? The most goals scored on them uh, in the league are second. Um, and that is a, a real head scratcher to me, how they're have been able to pull that off. Help help unpack those uh, those stats. Um, I mean, they're not they are the they have the second most number of goals scored against them. Uh, Liverpool have conceded sixteen goals. I believe Leeds and uh, West Brom have conceded the most goals at seventeen. But yes, your point is correct. They're third in the table on goal difference, uh, same number of points as uh, Spurs have in second place. So obviously, a large part of that. I mean, if you take away the seven goals they conceded against Villa, you've got nine goals conceded and. That was a freak of a night. Villas mm -hmm. had three goals um, scored that day from deflections, and uh, it was—I mean—a large part of that of their defensive sort of numbers at the moment is are those seven goals that they conceded. But I mean, you also have to consider the fact that Liverpool, going forward, are going to be without for uh, for the next six weeks are going to be without three of their best defenders, but. For a large part of the, for the, I mean, probably for the rest of the season, they're not going to have Virgil Van Dijk. Joe Gomez got injured in inter on international duty this week, so he's going to be he's had surgery on his knee. Who knows when he's going to be back? Probably six to eight weeks. Um, Joel Matip has just returned from injury, and he's sort of the only senior centre half left because uh, obviously uh, Van Dijk and uh, Gomez are out. Alexander Arnold also picked up an injury; he's also going to be out for six weeks or so. Andy Robertson has reported reported a tight hamstring in the game after um, he, he was part of the team for Scotland 
which qualified for Euro 2020. But I mean, I don't think he'll be out. But again, that's one person to keep an eye on. Um, they're going to have to play Driss Williams, who's 19. They're going to have to play Neko Williams at right back, who's again 19 or 20 years old. So Fabinho is out again. Fabinho, who's the defensive midfielder, but he will he played at centre half and then he got injured as well. He is not available either. So I mean, I'm not saying that Liverpool will keep conceding a lot of goals, but don't be surprised if you see Liverpool struggle defensively because they don't have anywhere close to their first choice personnel across their defense in defensive midfield. So it's again going to be a case of new players playing, you know, with each other. Guys have not really played with each other too much. So the defensive understanding and organization that only comes with familiarity when you play week in, week out, and you play week in, week out in training, that'll take time. So I, I do agree with your point in general that, I mean, you don't really expect to see the team who's conceded close to the most number of goals that high in the table. Mike, what I basically uh, want to say to that is the fact that while a large part of that is are the seven goals that they conceded against Villa, I do think that Liverpool will struggle defensively just because of the fact that they won't have their first choice, the majority of their first choice defense. Particularly with, with Reese Williams also coming in with an injury, a tight, a hip injury in the U21s yeah. uh, match uh, with England. So, yeah, it's and it's hard to figure out what is reality. The Andy Robertson tight hamstrings, uh, of course, Jordan Henderson also reported tight yeah. hamstrings. Yeah. So I don't know how much of those are uh, are uh, fabricated uh, and how much of it is 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 real uh, in terms of just taking these players off international duty and just letting them recover a little bit. So, um, but if there's a time for Leicester to make a move against Liverpool, uh, particularly with Salah out with the uh, coronavirus, um, I think this is that time. Um, I, I still think that Liverpool is going to be really difficult to beat just because they just have so much quality. And this is going to be really demonstrate how much depth they have in their squad. Um, they are certainly one of the higher payrolls in the league, but they're not certainly not in the, the highest payrolls. So um, it'll be, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm very excited about watching that match and seeing how they're going to be able to deal with that Barnes Vardy combination with that makeshift back line. So, um, so yeah. So why don't we turn our attention to uh, a third of the table, Tottenham. Um, Tottenham in, in my mind is kind of snuck up a little bit, right? I think people yeah. had some fairly low expectations. I think that people thought that their um, off season um, uh, acquisitions were good but nothing really to write home about but in in point of fact there's been some lightning in a bottle help us unpack that i mean spurs this again we've spoken earlier on the podcast about how because this is going to be a weird and messy season this is again one of those seasons where an unfancied team can win the title or make it to the top four and i genuinely feel that spurs have a chance a big chance at winning the title this year because I mean, the, the the business they did in the summer was good. They brought Hoybjerg in to sort of sit in front of the defense and anchor the defense. And he's a really underrated player. He was pretty good at Southampton and he's good at what he can do. There's a lot he can't do maybe, but the stuff he can do, which is breaking up attacks, 
sitting in and being positionally aware and then being good enough on the ball to lay it off to the more creative guys and uh, sort of not losing possession so that sort of thing is what he's good at um and then obviously you've had Gareth Bale come in on a loan deal he's starting to find his feet back in london getting back to full fitness so uh i i imagine a front three of harry kane son young min and gareth bale will be very difficult to play against and already i mean son and kane are proving to be a very lethal partnership and that's a, a major reason of, uh, behind that is because of kane's evolution of his role he's become more of as mourinho likes to say and a lot of european coaches say he he's become more of a 9 and a half than a number 9 he's dropping deeper playing as a second striker and um being more creative and which he's always had he's always been a creative player he's always had the ability to pick a pass uh, an incisive pass in the final third and he's showing that side of his game more you know he's the guy who's dropping in uh, into a, a little bit of a deeper role and then playing the pass through for son and that partnership has worked out brilliantly i mean kane has what eight assists already this season which is more than he had last season and he's leading he's leading the league for for assists and he scored seven goals so the kane son partnership i think is a big reason why uh i can see spurs making a serious serious run for the title and i mean and it's if you just look at the number of goals they've scored so far they've scored what 19 goals which is second in the league only chelsea have scored more at 20 and that's the fifth highest number of goals scored by uh, by any team in the top 5 uh european leagues so people do say that mourinho is a defensive manager but the numbers so far are showing that they are doing a good job offensively as well yeah i would agree and i i just want to give a shout out to ndembele uh because yeah you know he's in the top 15 of successful attacking actions uh as a midfielder um uh he's 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 done well in terms of um uh passing as well uh and creating opportunities so i i just wonder and i'm still too all or nothing to, um influence to have a a rational view on what their chances are i just worry a bit you know when when kane goes down right and or when a son goes down then what do they have to back it up right do they have the firepower of a chelsea or a um a liverpool to be able to weather the storm uh or or even a man united right so i don't know i'm i'm still undecided but it's still been made for some fascinating soccer some really first rate um goals uh that were scored some of their combinations were probably some of the most the best goals of the season in my opinion let's turn our attention to kind of a probably the biggest um overperformer so far this season which is southampton how do we unpack that um i mean southampton didn't really start the season too well i remember there was a lot of outcry over the not i wouldn't say outcry but there was a bit of concern over the first two three games where they were struggling they didn't pick up too many wins they lost a couple of games and uh, there seemed to be a bit of pressure on ralf hasenbuttel but they've turned it around over the last few games and his his hasenhutl system has a lot to do with it in terms of uh, how effective it is as both an attacking and a defensive uh, formation where he's he basically plays a 442 or a 4222 which is where 
He has two central midfielders who have usually been Oriel Romeo and uh, James Watt-Prowse, who sit in front of the defense. Romeo does more of the defensive work, mopping up, tackling, recycling possession. Watt-Prowse is the more ambitious one, and he's brilliant on set pieces. I mean, anybody who's not seen Southampton's last game, the pre- uh, the the last game they played in the Premier League, where he scored two free kicks, laid on an assist from a corner. I mean, his set piece delivery is amazing. I think he's probably one of the best that the Premier League have had since David Beckham. So they have that in their locker. And then you, the two wide midfielders stuck in play narrowly and you've got a strike duo of Jay Adams and Danny Ings. That provides a very good base offensively, but it's very solid defensively as well because you effectively have packed the center of the pitch. You don't really allow teams to be able to uh, have significant possession in difficult areas. And to add to that, Southampton press really well. And that's another highlight of Hassan Hutel because he's come through the, the Red Bull system. He was uh, RB Leipzig manager before he came here. And the 4-2-2 was, this, 4-2-2-2 was the system he used there as well. So he knows how to use that system. He, he, he's drilled those players really well. And the, the pressing of the ball is extremely good in terms of when to press and the areas where they press. I mean, they, they don't really uh, go haphazard and press high up the pitch. They, they tempt the other team out and most of their pressing occurs in the middle third of the pitch rather than up top but they regain the ball there and then are able to attack and then when you have a finisher like Danny Ings who's carried on from his form last season and you know he's he's he looks like he's going to have another brilliant goal scoring season although he has been injured he has picked up another injury and he will be out for about till about I think the 28th or 20 till maybe around Christmas so it'll be interesting to see how Spur, uh, sorry, Southampton cope with his absence because he. I think his goal scoring is a major reason why they are where they are. So we could see a bit of uh, a fall in terms of their goal scoring and then their results over the next, say, month or so. But so far, they've been pretty good. And Well, I would yeah. agree with you on that. I mean, I, I feel like, um, again, is there, there going to be too much over-reliance on Ings? Um, largely because... In the next month, they're going to have to play Wolves, Man United, Arsenal, and Man City, right? So yeah. they're going to need Ings back in a hurry um, for, for that gauntlet of games. One of probably the most difficult um, strength of schedule um, segments in the uh, uh, until mid-December. I am struck by your, your, your comment about how the system works. And I'm always, I hear that and I want to believe it. I'm somewhat skeptical, but as I look through the um, different metrics in terms of how well defenders defend, how well midfielders pass, and how well strikers attack, um, you know, you don't really see a lot of Southampton players make it into the top 20 in in those categories. But together, um, you know, I would, I, I guess I would say that given the lack of exemplary play uh, uh individually um they are taking care of it as a group and and having a, a a striker that can finish certainly helps facilitate that but for now i think we need to give a credit in terms of best coached and organized given the talent that you have uh, i think at this point that's what we can conclude so far um so let's turn our attention to um uh the, the next team um, in the league uh, standings, which is Chelsea. 
and Chelsea has been one of those. Um, they're in fifth place, so not something to beat your chest on, but there are some reasons why I think Chelsea fans are getting more excited. Um, help us help us explain that. So obviously Chelsea were one of the outliers in the transfer window where when everyone was looking to, I mean, you know, there weren't too many clubs splashing the money. Chelsea went out and spent nearly close to 200 million pounds this window. They brought in, what, seven, eight players. That, I mean, it's not like they've they've gone and sort of bet the house on something. They had, they've had two windows where they didn't really spend, they didn't spend any money because of the transfer ban. So they've had a lot of money left over from those two windows to spend. Plus, they've had a few uh, sort of deals which they got money from in this window. For example, the sale of Alvaro Morata brought in about 40, 45 odd million. So they had a significant war chest which they used. I think it was a case of because Chelsea had the money when nobody else did, they managed to get players which they would have been uh, in competition with other clubs for. So they did a really good job in the window in that regard. But uh, for example, I mean, just look at Timo Werner. He came to Chelsea uh, for what? About 40, 45 odd million, if I'm not wrong. But Liverpool, everybody thought that Werner would have gone to Liverpool. And I think if COVID had not hit us and we'd had a normal season, we would have seen Timo Werner at Liverpool. But the finances of the deal, plus the fact that, I mean, the fact that Liverpool could not justify paying that much for a player who wouldn't necessarily start all their games because of their front three, meant that they couldn't make that move and they picked up Timo Werner. It's a similar case for Kai Havertz as well. Havertz has long been touted as one of the players of this generation. You know, once uh, Ronaldo and Messi eventually retire and you have the sort of next generation of players coming through, it's he's long been touted as one of the winners of the Ballon d'Or, you know, in the future. Mm-hmm. And they managed to pick him up without any competition. So they did really well in terms of the attacking players they brought. They, they got Ben Chilwell in for about 50 million from Leicester, Thiago Silva in on a free, and they solved their goalkeeping issues with Eduard Mendy from Rene in Ligun. So transfer business was brilliant. Lots for Chelsea to get excited about, but they didn't start the season that well. And it, it seemed as if the team wasn't really... Um, I mean, the, the, the players didn't know each other, which was the case, with, which will be the case when you have so many new players coming into a team. It will take them time to gel and form partnerships and understand how, you know, um, how to play with each other. So it did seem like Lampard was struggling a little bit to figure out what his best team is, what his best formation is, who to play in those roles and where to play them. And that's why Chelsea was struggling. But I think over the last four or five games or so, he's hit on system he wants to play, the players that are doing well in that system, and you're starting to see Chelsea um, sort of uh, get into their stride with those players getting the hang of the Premier League and beginning to show their quality. So Chelsea fans do have a lot to be excited about, although I will caveat that by saying that they have had a pretty easy schedule so far. I think the upcoming matches are a little bit more difficult for them. Right. Yeah. You know, in fact, I really think, um, you know, Werner's had four goals, Abraham's had two, and Havertz has had one, total of seven goals. You would think with all the hype that they would have done better, um, particularly with Werner, just uh, just barely in the top 20 in terms of successful offensive actions per 90 um, amongst all the strikers. So I, I think there's probably more upside with respect to that. I, I will say that um, I think probably the most important um, pickup uh, – has been Mendy. I just feel like um, they they're playing with a lot more confidence uh, defensively. Um, you know, 
if you look at individual stats of Silva, Zuma, James, and Chilwell, they're nothing to really write home about in terms of uh, defensive actions per 90, but um, uh, they are con- they are coming together um, as, a, as a group. And um, I just feel like if you have a lot of confidence in, in your keeper, um, that in turn helps defense feel more confidence, and that's just going to – the whole team is going to exude – I'm not a huge fan of clean sheets, but uh, it is a it is an indicator. And um, and Mindy has, is uh, right now rated uh, fourth best in terms of prevented goals uh, per ninety. Um, so uh, he he's clearly doing well. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see if 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 Chelsea really get into full gear, they are going to be very very formidable. Um, it's you know. Then the X factor is Lamp- Lampard as as a coach and the tactics. Um, I don't know if that's going to matter a whole lot because if you, uh, you know, as Pep Guardiola says, oh, the easiest way to have a great team is to have great talent. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so yeah. So we'll kind of see how that that plays out. Um, so, how about in terms of um, Aston Villa? Are they a flash in the pan, or do you think they're going to have some stain stain power? Do you think they can hold their sixth position or are they going to move more down to mid-table? I don't think they're going to hold six. They're going to probably, I see them finishing mid to low table, but it's Mm -hmm. definitely an improvement on last season. Mm -hmm. Recruitment was great in the summer. Um, They brought in a few good players to fill key roles, which they struggled with last season. And that's uh, a, a, a major part of this their survival last season was down to Jack Grealish, you know, the attacking threat and the goals and the assists and everything that he brings to that team. He was all, he almost single-handedly was dragging Villa sort of out of the relegation zone in terms of his attacking output. But um, they brought in Ollie Watkins from Brentford to lead the line. Ross Barkley is coming on loan from Chelsea, who's providing support to Grealish in terms of the attacking uh, uh, workload. Matty Cash is coming on, coming at right back from Nottingham Forest, and he's done superbly. He's a really good, solid right back who's also contributing in an, in an attacking sense. So, and obviously, Emi Martinez has come in in goal. Uh, he, he finished the season brilliantly for Arsenal, and then got a move to Villa, where he is the undisputed number one, and he's doing well as well, uh, well there. So, they recruited well, but I do think that they will drop a little bit because they are outperforming. If you look at metrics, I mean, they've scored 18 goals against an expected goals value of 11.6. So clear outperformance there. Even in terms of some of the other expected goal numbers that you look at, uh, they have there has been an improvement, in term, especially defensively. So if you look at expected goals against per shot, which is basically the XG value of every shot that uh, Villa have faced, but on average, taken as an average of all the shots that they've taken. So if you look at XG, XGA per shot again, uh, per shot, it's at about point, uh, 0.11 this season when it was 0.13 last season. So that's a decrease of about 17.5% in terms of the quality of shots that the Villa defense or Villa as a team are allowing against them, which tells you that they're defending better, that they're not letting teams get shots away from dangerous positions. So I think the, the defensive performance is sustainable. The offensive performance, not as much. So I think that they will sort of level off and maybe go down to 10th, 12th, maybe, or maybe a bit lower as well. But 
that would still be a very good performance from this Villa team. Yeah, I think I have a little different take than you do. I mean, I think Grealish, Watkins, Barkley, uh, Trezeguet. I mean, those are those are four legitimate offensive options there. Um, I think they've they've checked the box in terms of getting a competent goalkeeper. Um, you know, their Matty Cash is just on, on absolute fire. Um, you know, I, I you know their their other um, defenders are are a little more unheralded, but as a unit, uh, you know, they they're working well. I mean, Mings, Konsa, um, Target, uh, those are all solid uh, contributors. Uh, so. I think they're going to be a contender for the Europa, uh, certainly mid-table, but I wouldn't see them move anywhere near lower table anytime soon. Um, but let's let's see where they go. I, I'm just... I Sorry, all I want to say is just in terms of the numbers, I think they, the trend is definitely going to drop. Because, I mean, look at it this way. They've played seven games. Right. They have, what, how many points do they have? They have 15 points, right? Yeah. That comes to a points per game average of... 2.14. Now, if you just do a simple extrapolation of that 2.14 points per game over 38 games, that comes out to 81 points. There's no way Aston Villa are getting 81 points. 81 points would have got them second place in the league last year, third place in the league the year before that. So there's definitely going to be a leveling off. I oh, don't see them being I, able to manage I don't this. question that. And, and I'd say the big, obviously the big, uh, the number outliers we kind of have to cast out is the Liverpool. Um, the number of goals in that. But if you if you strike two or three of those goals against Liverpool, then their expected goals versus how many goals they've scored aren't off dramatically. They're still overperforming by by at least three goals or so. But I just I don't know. I I, I really like the connectivity that they're having um, in the midfield. I like the fact that Grealish um, tends to dribble up more uh, and that Barkley can kind of go both ways, right? Uh, he's a brilliant passer as well as a um, can can take the ball and, and advance it down in the field himself. So I just I feel like they got some some pieces to it. I think the transfer window was so so kind to them. Um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna believe the uh, the Aston Villa. I'm gonna drink the drink the Kool Aid on them. Will they be uh, Champions League contenders? No, but will they? Could they be Europa? Maybe particularly in a season like this. Um, speaking of kind of things that are hard to get our bearings on, how about Everton? Are they, have we seen the best of what they've had or are, are, are there, is there some un, unseen promise still? I mean, Everton, the way I see it, they, obviously this, they started the season brilliantly and they've tailed off, they've lost their last four games. Mm-hmm. But they're a team at the moment who rely a lot on a few key individuals. And if those guys are either missing from the team or out of form, they're going to struggle. So Everton have not had Richarlison for the last three games because he's uh, he picked up a straight red card. So he was banned for three games. Luca Dinia, who's the left back, um, also picked up a straight red card. He was banned for three games. So he's also not been available. Uh, so just not having those two guys has made such a huge difference to Everton because the entire attacking impetus that Richarlison provides down the left, or if he's playing as sort of a strike partnership with Calvert-Lewin, that's been lost. Dinier, in my opinion, is probably the best left back in the Premier League after Andrew Robertson. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've not had him for the last three games as well. So 
that i think has had a huge impact on how they've played but at the same time i will say that james rodriguez has been a revelation he's superb creatively but again he causes problems defensively especially because he's played the being played down the right the, his tendency to move inside causes teams to be able to, to sort of double up on everton's uh, right hand side and we saw that perfectly in the game in last in the uh, last game that everton played against man united where they lost 3-1 united consistently kept attacking down their left and therefore everton's right because they knew that hames even though hames was getting back tracking back his positioning invariably means that you could have a 2v1 uh, down the left hand side if you move the ball quick enough and united did, did that a couple of times both of united's first like the first two goals that united scored came down the left uh they they left you know so with everton i feel i mean again there's another metric i want to look at which is expected points which i want to bring in here which for anybody who's watching or, or listening who doesn't know what expected points are it's basically a simulation that's run where every shot that a team takes is simulated i think i don't remember whether it's a thou- i think it's about 10000 times and that's done throughout the season and the val- uh, those the the outcomes are then simulated to then create the outcomes for every match so you have 10000 simulations of every match and then that gives you the points total from that match you know so if you won you get 3 points if you lose you get 0 if you draw you get 1 and that is then brought in to an aggregate to give you what the expected points should be so according to y scout everton who have 13 points so far in the premier league should have have an expected points value of 10.4 which would put them at i believe 13th place if i'm not wrong 11th place sorry in the league if the points table were to reflect how it would be as per expected points so even though again small sample size only 20% of the season i do feel that everton are like villa in that sense you know they they're not going to be champions league contenders but they could be europa league could be best of the rest sneak into fifth or sixth or i mean if they continue to outperform some metrics if calvert-lewin can continue his goal scoring form if hames can continue creating chances richarlison dinier these guys can have good seasons and then the guys who are sort of shutting up shop behind them you know dukure allen in midfield uh whoever plays at center back whether it's holgate uh, keen or yarimina all those guys also have good seasons i could see them sneaking in but what i'm basically trying to say is that it'll need maybe seven or eight guys having exceptional seasons for everton to be able to finish in the top four and it'll mean their goalkeeper having a in uh, <laughs> it i would i would just even say goalkeeper replacement um you know he he is underperforming goalkeepers as as a group uh which is a little unfortunate you know i absolutely love his distribution capabilities and he tends to take um more longer distributions uh and create those direct threats but he's still prone to very large errors that lead to goals yeah. um, even though everton's defense um i think is very solid overall so that's going to be one of those wait and sees um Why don't you let's do a quick take on Wolves largely because uh you know they they've scored eight goals and they've given up nine goals so there's a, a little bit of you know it's it's a solid performance coming in at ninth place um you know I I imagine they're they're missing uh Diego Diego Jota um at least watching him absolutely go on fire 
at Liverpool, but you know they're they're at ninth in the table, so they're still in that kind of Europa contender status. What's your short take on on the Wolves? Wolves, I mean, obviously they've lost Jota, but they also lost Matt Doherty to Spurs, and this is the first season since they've been promoted to the Premier League where they've lost two key first team players. You know, Jota and uh, Doherty basically played every game, mm-hmm. so they've had to sort of reconfigure. I mean, not reconfigure in terms of the system. Nuno has been very consistent in playing a three-four-three or a three-five-two since he came, since he became manager. I don't think they've played any other system in uh, during his time in charge. But new players have had to come in and sort of uh, understand his style of play as well as adapt to the Premier League and and the opposition and all of that. So, I mean, again, if you look at the numbers, there is reason to be concerned because if I go back to the metrics I was talking about earlier, which is XG per shot and XG per shot against, there there is nearly a 21% decline in uh, Wolves' XG per shot that's gone from um, 0.1, uh, sorry, 0.126 last season to 0.1. And there's been more than a 28% increase in the quality of shots that the opposition have taken. That has gone from uh, 0.11 to 0.14. So, I mean, both offensively and defensively, if you look at these metrics, there has been a bit of uh, uh, a negative impact in terms of both their creativity and the the defensive work that they're doing in terms of a lot of the shots that they're allowing from other teams. So, again, I think Wolves will, I mean, they're a good solid side, really well drilled. They have some really good players in Jimenez, Adam Atraore, Ruben Neves, Joao Moutinho. So, as you said, you know, they, they, I think them, I, I, I'm not sure if they, if they'll be able to make it to Europa, but they're ninth right now. According to expected points, they'd be 13th. So that's basically the band I put them in, you know, that yeah. from about seventh or eighth to about 14th or 15th, they'd probably finish somewhere in there. So yeah, yeah. pretty much uh, where you'd expect them to be. Well, let's turn our attention to Man City, right? They're, um, yeah. Their goal scored versus expected goals is more or less on target, as is their uh, goals scored against uh, and their expected goals scored against. Should we be? Should Man City fans be happy with where they are now, given circumstances, or should they be disappointed? If you only look at what you just spoke about, which is XG versus goal scored and XGA versus goals against, you'd say, okay, they're where. I mean, those numbers are where they should be. Mm-hmm. Ideally, you would want them to be outperforming, which they've done in previous seasons. But mm-hmm. I mean, there is a solid base there. But if you dive a little deeper, there is a reason to be concerned. Again, going back to the numbers I was, the metrics I was talking about earlier, xG per shot and xG per shot against, those numbers have dropped off a bit of a cliff for City this season. In terms of xG per shot, they only they're only at point one zero five. Of uh, worth of XG per every shot that they take, while that was at 0.142 last season, which is the second highest in the league. In terms of XG per shot against, they were at 0.13 last season. They're at 0.174. So in percentage terms, their XG per shot has uh, dropped by more than 26%. And their XG per shot against has increased by more than 30%. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... And again, this this bears out if you've seen Man City this season. Even though, I mean, they've they brought in Ruben Diaz and Nathan Ake at centre-half. Ruben Diaz and Laporte looks like a good solid centre-back partnership, which I think will get better as the season progresses. But they've still made defensive errors. I mean, 
the best example of that is the Leicester City uh, game where they conceded five, and three different Man City defenders gave away the three penalties that Leicester scored. So it's just defensively there have been issues, and offensively, uh, it's it's like they've they, somebody's turned off the tap in terms of creativity, and it's all focused on Kevin De Bruyne. If Kevin De Bruyne has a bad day, City have a bad day, and it wasn't the case. That was never the case with City. You know, it wasn't. As if they were so reliant on one player because they had David Silva, De Bruyne, you had the likes of Leroy Sané and um, Raheem Sterling uh, creating opportunities down the flanks. The fullbacks getting forward and creating opportunities. You don't have any of that anymore. City don't look that dynamic. So yes, they've had injury issues, not having Aguero, not having Jesus. Uh, Bernardo Silva has been off form for quite a while. He wasn't at his best last season, and he's not really looking that great. This season so far, um, and it's it's extremely reliant on De Bruyne at the moment, which is the problem I think from an offensive point of view. Defensively, I mean, I think once those guys gel, once Diaz and Laporte are able to form a solid partnership, it could get better. But again, there's always been a problem at left back which they've not been able to solve. So I would be concerned if I were a City fan. The only thing I will say in that regard is again because it's a messy season. And we expect it to be chaotic. City still do have enough quality to be a title contender, but they need to improve a lot at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think my sense is that um, defense stays healthy, uh, which you would hope that they'd have a run on that, and Aguero comes back, uh, and Jesus is continues to stay healthy and productive. I kind of like I like their chances, even though they're kind of they've they've given up a few spots um, in the first seven games of the season. So, um, yeah, we'll kind of see where, where they go. Um, how about in terms of Arsenal, who are right below them? What's what's your take on Arsenal? Arsenal, uh, I mean, they're, they're, they're a team which you, you can get behind what Mikel Arteta is trying to do in terms of what tactics he is trying to use, the system he's trying to employ. But at the same time, some decisions have been extremely head-scratching. Like, for example... Aubameyang has looked completely isolated this season. Anybody who's seen him can see that there is something going on there where he's just not got into goal-scoring positions enough. And, I, and I'll say that that's not... I mean, there are some who say that that's because he's playing out on the left. I don't think that's true because he played out on the left for most of last season as well, but he still scored goals. Arsenal are struggling to get the ball to him. Arsenal are struggling with creativity. And I mean, the fact that they signed William on a free transfer from Chelsea and he's the guy who's playing mostly as the sort of creative player in the front three is really surprising because William's not known for his creativity. He's known for his work off the ball. The fact that he would put in a defensive shift and that would let, say, for example, that would let, you know, Eden Hazard do the offensive stuff at Chelsea because William was carrying his workload defensively. William is not the guy who's going to be unlocking... Uh, opposition teams of finding, you know, killer passes. And it's, again, the one of the greatest mysteries of our times that probably one of the best playmakers of the last 20 years in Mesut Ozil is sitting not even on the bench on a £350,000 salary at Arsenal when they're crying out for creativity. So that decision is one of the weirdest ones I've seen. And that's really been a struggle for me to get behind in terms of Arteta. Other than that, Yes, there is a plan in place. They've recruited decently in the summer. Gabriel looks like a really good addition at centre-half. Um, 
and obviously Thomas Partey coming in from Atletico is going to be a very good signing. I mean, anybody who's not seen him, um, he is he 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 is almost the complete midfielder in the sense that he can tackle, he can pass, he can dribble, and he can um, you know even create to a decent extent. So I look forward to him doing well and how the Arsenal midfield will evolve with him in the side. But just if you if you look at numbers and metrics. Um, expected points puts them at 12.1 points. They have 12 points. So, I mean, that tells you that they're right where they are. Goals for XG, more or less in line. Goals against XG, more or less in line. Um, they have, I mean, if you look at the XG per shot numbers, there has been an improvement of about 15.5% in terms of the quality of ch- uh, shots that they're taking. And an improvement of about 10% in terms of the quality of shots that they're giving up. So there is some underlying material that's good there, but they just need to improve, I think, a lot more if they want to get into the top four. Yeah, I mean, my sense is that I understand the system that they play. They have legitimately good players. Um, Their offensive has underperformed. Uh, Lacazette has really been a a disappointment as well, even though I'm a ginormous fan of them. Uh, Defensively, they're very solid compared to past years. Midfielding-wise, from a passing perspective, if you look at the metrics, they do really, really well. And so they've got connectivity. Um, They've got that style of play. It's just that final finishing in in the third. And a switch needs to be flipped. And somehow, some way, Arteta's going to have to figure out how to flip that switch. So I, I'm not sure how that's going to play out, but I suspect it will. It will happen. All the pieces are in place for that. So um, you know, we'll kind of see where that takes us. They are going to be playing Leeds uh, this weekend, which is going to be, I think, quite a challenge for them. Let's turn our attention to Man United. What's where are we with Man United? It's been a roller coaster of a season. You've had United playing some. Like definitely playing some really good football in terms of tactics in the Champions League against RB Leipzig and PSG and picking up wins there. And on the other hand, you've had the defeat to Spurs. You've had the almost defeat to Brighton where it was a penalty in after the final whistle that gave them the win. So it's... And that's, I think, been the trend under Solskjaer, especially after he was given the job permanently, that it's been a roller coaster. You have two steps forward, one step back. It's just been how it's been over the last 18 months or so. And I mean, as a United fan, the numbers aren't really that great because seven games, uh, 10 points is not a good return, obviously. But again, if you dive a little deeper into the numbers, they've scored 12 goals from an XG of 7.7, which in one way to read that is that, well, they're doing well in terms of uh, finishing chances that the uh, uh, you know uh, difficult chances, but the, the counterpoint to that is that they're not creating high quality chances in the first place. And defensively, <clears throat> they defensively they're not doing well at all because the XGA puts them at about eleven point three eight, but they've conceded fourteen goals. According to expected points, I mean United would have seven point eight points, and that would put them in seventeenth place, just one place outside the relegation zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I look at the XG per shot numbers, there's been a nearly 22% decline in terms of XG per shot from last season. 
and a 27% increase in terms of the quality of shots that they've allowed. So the underlying numbers don't look that good at the moment. I'll caveat that by saying again that it's only seven games. There is um, a lot more of the season to be played and there has been United arguably uh, were the team most affected by the short preseason because they played until August, uh, getting to the semi-finals of the Europa League. So they've had a really short preseason. They've had players who've <clears throat> tested positive for COVID. Paul Pogba, for example, one of uh, high profile, one of the most high profile players who tested pos- positive for COVID. Luke Shaw has been ruled out with injury now, and Alex Telles, who would have come in as his replacement when he signed on deadline day, he's tested positive for COVID. So I don't know if he's going to be playing straight away or we're going to need to wait for a couple of weeks for him to come in. Uh, but yeah, um, with United, there is still hope in terms of the players that United have and the fact that Solskjaer has been able to put out a system to beat specific opponents, but there's a lot of improvement needed and uh, for them to be getting anywhere close to the top four, I feel. So here's my take. They are, they are stacked at most every position. In fact, easy to argue that they have one too many midfielders. Uh, one too many high-profile midfielders. Um, they've got um, eleven, eight, or ten points right now. If if that game you mentioned had gone the other way, they'd be they'd have thirteen points, would have them tied for seventh place, right? So I'm not ready to uh, to to declare Man United um, dead on arrival because they just have so much quality everywhere. I think a lot of folks are going to complain a bit that Ole doesn't have a, con- a particularly consistent style of play, that he is tactically more flexible depending on the opposition that he's playing. Um, but I just, I don't know. I, there's so much talent there. And at some point, something's going to click together. Uh, and then we're going to really see what, what Man United can do. Um, I will tell you, it's still really hard to imagine there. 14th in the table. But um, uh, again, we've only got um, um, seven matches under their belt. So we'll kind of see where, where things go with that. But it's, I really kind of, I'm categorizing Man United and Arsenal the same place where they've got all the pieces in place. Now the, the tenders need to be lit to, to get them on fire. Um, why don't we turn our attention to Leeds, uh, who are going to be playing Arsenal this weekend? What's your quick take on Leeds? Um, Leeds have been by far, I think, the most <clears throat> entertaining team to watch in the league so far this season. Mm-hmm. Um, every game of theirs has been a lot of fun to watch and that's down to the way Bielsa plays. It's always high octane, high energy, um, sort of sticking to the system that he has no matter. Obviously, there are tweaks based on the opposition and, and the personnel he has available, but broadly, it's the same system and the same style of play every week. Uh, now. They're, they're what? They're in 15th place. They have uh, 10 points, same as Man United, but having played a game more. That's in line with expected points, actually. Expect, uh, their expected points, according to Scout is at 10.2. Um, they've scored the same. Uh, their goal scored is, is in line with the XG. Goals conceded is in line with XG. So you would think that they are doing, presumably, or I mean, you'd think that they're where they should be. But if I look, a little bit deeper into the XG per shot numbers, the it, it really shows you the step up in quality in terms of what happens when you come from the championship to the Premier League. Uh, 
they are actually creating better quality opportunities. There's a 21% increase in terms of the XG per shot that they take, but there's been a 50% increase in terms of the quality of shots that they're allowing the XG per shot against. And that is, I think there's two things at play. One, obviously, the quality of the Premier League teams that they've faced so far will be much higher than the championship teams. And secondly, it's just the way and the system that leads play because of the man-marking system that they follow throughout throughout the team. It's not just in defense, right? Leads man-mark across the pitch. When it doesn't come off or when there's a mistake, it leaves the team open to conceding high-quality chances. And we've seen that happen. Defenders have made mistakes at times. And again, this ties in to the fact that Leeds play a really intense style of play. I mean, you wouldn't expect a promoted team to lead the league in terms of PPDA, which is uh, passes for the per, per defensive action, which tells you how intense a team's press is. Leeds lead the league for that. Leeds lead the league for challenge intensity as well, which is basically the number of duels, tackles and interceptions for every minute that the opposition has the ball. Leeds lead the league for both the, both of those uh, those two statistics. So in, that that tells you how intense and how well drilled the team is. And when it works, it, it's brilliant defensively. But when it doesn't, it, it's you know you can you literally have give up easy chances for the other team to score. And I think that's what's happened with Leeds a little bit in terms of prediction or where I see them ending up. Mid table maybe could end up in the top ten make a tilt for Europa, but uh, that would still be a great season. I mean, for a promoted team, right? So I don't think there's anything too much for Leeds fans to be concerned about. Yeah. I mean, I think that what history has demonstrated to us is those teams that were promoted, if they have a solid defense, they tend to um, stay up. Uh, And if you look at their uh, defenders, I mean, um, uh, uh, Coke and Cooper are in the top five in terms of individual defensive actions. Uh, and, and Dallas is sixth and Aileen is 13th. In fact, Aileen in terms of attacking, um, uh, uh, actions of, of defenders, uh, is, uh, also, uh, rates very, very high, um, to the point where, um, he, is, one could make the argument that he is probably the best all one of the best all-round defenders in in the Premier League. Um so that part um is good. I just feel like their offense is you know Bamford has had some strong performances but um probably needs a little more consistency. Looking forward to Rodrigo um really kind of getting um into um full cycle there. Uh, with respect to some of the the matches that he's been able to meet miss, um, so I don't know. We're, we're going to see what happens. I do think they are number one on the list in terms of most entertaining to watch. Um, but you know, time will tell on on um, how they are. I don't I don't think they're the fifteenth best team in the league. I think they're probably mid table um, at, uh, at worst. So we'll we'll see where they end up. So. Help us kind of wrap this up here. Um, what are what are some things you're going to be looking for in the in the coming weeks? One of the things I'm going to be looking for or looking at at least is Brighton because we've been talking about all these underlying metrics and whether they can tell us something about how teams are doing. Brighton have been extremely unlucky. They're in 16th place. They've got uh, just six points. 
but according to expected points they should have 14 points which would put them second just behind liverpool liverpool's expected points tally is 15.2 and brighton's is the second highest in the league at 14.3 and again if you've seen brighton play this season you can sort of understand where that's coming from because they've played really well they they play had a really good game against chelsea but lost that 3-1 played really well against man united but was they hit the woodwork five times in that game but lost it to a penalty in the 96th or 97th minute mm-hmm. and they've had a bunch of other games where they've played well but they've just i mean it's been a case of and i forget who the who the said this but and i'm paraphrasing but there is a quote which basically says that you i mean football is basically about how good you are in the two boxes your own box and the opposition box right and that's basically where brighton have suffered where some of the approach play has been fantastic some of the general defensive play with in terms of pressing in the opposition's third in the middle third has been good the defensive shape has been good but they've not been clinical in front of goal and they've uh, you know they've conceded chances as well mm-hmm. okay, and uh, um, even if you compare the X- xg numbers against last season there's a 20% increase in terms of their xg per shot and there's a 12% improvement in terms of the quality of the shots that they are allowing the opposition you know in terms of the opposition having uh, 12% worse quality in terms of the shots that the opposition are taking mm-hmm. so the underlying numbers tell me that brighton are due for a serious rise up the table and i'm going to wait and see if that happens so that's one thing um other than that just as we've spoken about some of uh, just generally whether the outperformers that we've spoken of in general can keep outperforming and the underperformers which are some of the big teams such as united city um arsenal whether they can you know get back to a more normal position in the league so broadly these two things or trends are what i'm going to be looking at what about you um i'm inclined to agree with you um on some of the specifics i mean i think arsenal and man united the quality will um start to rise um you know i i'm curious to see how let liverpool goes with with their litany of of injuries uh you know um man city had to deal with this earlier in the season i think man city's going to escalate because they are going to have some healthy players um i am going to be really curious to see chelsea because i don't feel like they're firing on all cylinders yet uh so i i see a lot of the traditional uh big 6 moving up i don't buy into lester being able to hold anywhere near the top 4 um so i i see kind of a a slow decline um happening there um I see uh leads going up to uh to mid table um probably because that's wh- where their uh style of play plus their quality of player belong. Um so I do think there's going to be a fair bit of movement in the next 6 or 8 weeks largely because we just got a, a whole bunch of games uh we're going to have a whole probably another round of injuries um because of Champions League in Europa. Uh I just I am I just can't believe um that there're going to be so many games that are going on um and players are going to have to blow up and I hope that the Harry Kanes uh of the world and maybe even Rashfords of the world say enough is enough we need to um these schedules are absolutely ridiculous um so um 
you know, uh, it'll be interesting to see how many U23s are playing in late December uh, for a lot of these teams. Uh, so time will tell on that. So yeah. those are really what 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 my takes are. Um, I, you know, I think to kind of circle back to the underlying themes that we've talked about for the um, for the season, um, we said that it was going to be messy, um, as in M E S S Y, uh, uh-huh. and and that's proven to be the case. Um, strangely, that's created I I increased parity um which to me as a as a fan of a fan of football i'm really excited to see that um we also talked about um dogmatism versus pragmatism um i think given the circumstances and the injuries uh coaches are having to be more pragmatic um so you know i think we looked at bellwethers of um of uh pep and bielsa uh, in terms of being dogmatist about things. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm seeing more flexibility ac- across the board. I am happy to see there's more open play. I'm disappointed that there's so many penalty kicks. I just, it breaks my heart. And, um, you know, I look forward to um, basically the VAR folks making their decisions more quickly because uh, I do feel that it is, taking away um, from the enthusiasm of the game. Um, and I'm, I'm all for accuracy, but I feel like we've lost our, our way a little bit in that sense. Yeah. Any final, any final comments, Harshal? Yeah, I agree with you. Um, VAR has been, it's brought, it's done a lot of good in terms of a lot of stuff that wasn't being caught earlier, being caught and being called for whatever it is offside or foul or whatever, but in as you said you know in pursuing accuracy we've somewhere lost the spirit of the game and the spirit of some of the things that uh, and how what they were originally intended to be so let's hope that that does get resolved over the next few weeks or so but other than that yeah it's been a very open season uh it's been a lot more competitive obviously we can see that in the table so i've said this earlier as well just the the way this season has started and the circumstances surrounding uh, football and obviously the wider world at the moment mean that it's, I think, even though some of these trends will regress to the mean, we will still see one of the highest goals, one of the highest scoring seasons in family history. We will probably break the record for penalties in a season. And, but at the same time, um, I don't think your a team that the team that wins the league this season will, you know, get 90 or 95 plus points, which has happened over the last couple of seasons. Um, Again, if I go back to expected points, Leicester uh, have the highest uh, expected points uh, tally of the season so far. If I'm sorry, not the uh, not expected points. If I go back to points per game, where if you look at the points per game that every team has had so far, and you project that over uh, over the entire season, Leicester come out on top with 85 points at the moment. So that just tells you that I think the the team that wins the title will have anywhere between 80 to 90 points. And it'll be a lot closer. So uh, the likes of Leicester, Spurs, maybe even a Chelsea, or then, you know, if City, Arsenal, United can get their act together, they have a real shot, I think, at the title. And some of the teams we've mentioned on the podcast so far have a chance at making Europa or even Champions League places because it's going to be such an open season that, uh, you know, the, this is the best chance to sneak in. Yeah, I still think... It's either Liverpool or Man City, but um, the 
Oh yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's still too early to say the lesser title challengers. It's still between City and Liverpool. Yeah, the, the golf, the golf has con- been considerably diminished, and I don't. I think COVID's impact is still going to be amazingly pronounced in terms of like Mo Salah having to to sit out yeah. against Leicester. I mean, it's really unfortunate. Um, I'm hoping that we don't have a interruption in play. Uh, in January, February. So we'll keep our fingers crossed, stay optimistic about this, uh, and we'll, we'll leave the podcast uh, where we are right now. Um, we're sponsored by the EPL Prospectus, a 280-page season guide updated regularly by a team of 25-plus writers and designers, Moneyball for football, analytics plus opposition analysis plus eye candy, available at www.thinkingfanmedia.com and on Amazon. Join us for our next Football Thinking Fans podcast. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao.